This is an RNZ podcast. This is Media Watch. I'm Colin Peacock. This week we look at why our official Media Watchdog has sanctioned Sky TV for airing the Christchurch gunman's mosque shooting footage on March the 15th. But it wasn't the only one here to air images that were banned soon after by the chief censor. Much more of the footage was shown in Australia on no fewer than four national TV channels, but their regulator decided not to discipline any of them. This week we ask an ethics expert about that and whether we need new rules for this kind of content. But first, ten days have now passed since an ageing Aussie talk radio shock jock, Alan Jones, hit the headlines with some violent verbiage directed at Jacinda Ardern. The outcry might just run the belligerent broadcaster's long and lucrative career off the rails, but why was his rant still in the news this week? From the Alan Jones sock comments continue. Let me just play this for you so you understand what he said. I just wonder whether Scott Morrison's going to be fully briefed to shove a sock down the throat. Mm-hmm. Uh, put a sock in it is actually the phrase. But anyway, advertisers have been pulling the pin on the Australian uh, broadcaster's radio show. That was Duncan Garner on the AM show last Tuesday and a story that's run and run on both sides of the Tasman since that now notorious on-air blurt first hit the headlines 10 days ago when the Prime Minister was in Tuvalu at the Pacific Islands Forum. Last Tuesday morning, Duncan Garner made that the top issue for the Prime Minister's weekly appearance on his show when she was back in New Zealand, even though Jacinda Ardern was not inclined to give it any more oxygen, no matter how many times Duncan Garner tried to get her to do just that. You weren't defeated in any way. I mean, it was. Did you think it was too aggressive the way he said, "Shove a, a, a sock down your throat"? Again, just trying to draw me in on an opinion. Yes. Um, and I just, I just, I haven't engaged in it. Don't intend to. But last Tuesday, the story already had fresh legs on it here once it was up and running in Australia again the night before, where it was first reported that, in addition to that sock-down-the-throat shocker, Alan Jones had aimed more violent verbiage at Jacinda Ardern in the same broadcast. The ABC TV show Media Watch began like this last Monday night. It's worth listening to his tirade, which started within minutes of him going on air last Thursday. She's now struggling to live up to all her self-generated hype. This lightweight New Zealand Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern is challenging Scott Morrison over climate change. Now, I hope Scott Morrison gets tough here with a few backhanders. Hasn't got a clue, this woman. Yes, a few backhanders. Just what a woman needs. Paul Barry, the host of the ABC TV show Media Watch, catchy name, said the sock down the throat comment came half an hour after that and 15 minutes before this. If I see her once more on the TV, I'll puke. Now that backhander comment also seemed to be news to the rest of the media in Australia too. But what everyone missed in the same broadcast, this comment, minutes earlier. Now I hope Scott Morrison gets tough here with a few backhanders. Do you have a problem with women? Well I think you better ask women that. Um, I don't go around pumping up my own tyres. Here, News Hub reported the Alan Jones insults on Tuesday as fresh comments that appear to have been overlooked until they were unearthed by the ABC. And News Talk ZB also called it fresh audio, even though it was almost five days old at that point. But that was also odd because hundreds of thousands of people in New South Wales would have heard Alan Jones say all that on the air last week. News Talk ZB's source for that was Rupert Murdoch's News Corp in Australia, and on Monday, News Corp's flagship paper, The Australian, explained precisely how those comments made just after 6am four days earlier didn't simply vanish into the ether after all, after Alan Jones blurted them out on air. A few hours later, the geniuses at 2GB's online team decided in their wisdom to heavily promote Jones's remarks. They ran his comments in full as the lead story to top the entire 2GB website. 
The Australian even reported that 2GB had made the comments conveniently shareable on social media, where a trickle of reaction quickly became a flood. Advertisers started pulling out of the Alan Jones show, and the social media activist group Sleeping Giants even tweeted the postal address of 2GB's chief executive and urged people to send him socks to use on Alan Jones' throat. And in the afternoon, Alan Jones dodged out of a funeral to phone in some damage control on 2GB. Hello, Ben. Look, I, I should firstly say I'm sorry to be late, but I'm actually at a funeral, and so it's been a little bit of a difficult day. But look, yes, my attention has been drawn to the fact that um, the comments that I made have given offence. Alan Jones' 2GB mate Ben Fordham was right to call it a sort of apology. What I meant to say was that Scott Morrison should tell Ms Ardern to put a sock in it. There are many people who would relish the opportunity to misinterpret anything that I say. And the following morning, Alan Jones himself appeared on News Talk ZB's Mike Hosking Breakfast, where he made it clear he still wanted Jacinda Ardern silenced with a sock. Someone's got to tell this woman to keep quiet, put a sock in it. I said, it's a metaphorical way of saying shut up. I wish she would shut up. And for good measure, Alan Jones was also not at all worried about offending what he called the Pacific Islands mob at the Pacific Islands Forum. These people think we're just money trees and they can mention climate change. I wonder will they be mentioning climate change to China? And Alan Jones went on to tell Mike Hosking, who couldn't get a word in himself, that he was talking on behalf of the quiet Australians. But Monday's backhander comment amplified the scandal, as did other aggressive comments he's made about female leaders in the past, getting another airing by media rivals. Indeed, the comedy crew The Chaser mashed up many of Alan Jones' greatest hits in a spoof ad aimed at 2GB's commercial clients. Racism. The in the woodpile here, if one can use that expression. Climate change denial. Now, as you know, I don't believe all this global warming and climate change nonsense. And violence against women. You put your head in a noose. Lots of violence against women. Jacinda Ardern is challenging Scott Morrison over climate change. Now, I hope Scott Morrison gets tough here with a few backhanders. And the advertisers coming back to the show once everything else dies down was also a prospect that the Channel 10 show The Project raised the same day, but not for laughs. The history of these things seems to be that at the moment of outrage, the advertisers pull their advertising mm. and then they wait for everyone to forget mm. and then they re-advertise. That's what Very happens, Very quietly. Right? Yes. They, 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 they withdraw their advertising dollars loudly. Very publicly, yeah. Which is actually, when you think about it, another ad... Yeah, it's sort of like sure, brand. Yeah. It's branding, isn't it? Really? Yes. Yeah. Mm. And then quietly reinstate it. If that's what's going on, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Now, Alan Jones himself had pondered this prospect, but bullishly claimed there were plenty more advertisers in the queue waiting to be on his show. But what was it about Alan Jones not being the kind of guy who pumps up his own tyres? It seems he will do that if he fears there's a risk they might go flat. But while all this is a big issue over there in Australia, where Alan Jones is a genuine political and cultural figure, is it really worth the media's time of day over here? Well, not according to the lobbyist from the left, Neil Jones, on Nine to Noon's politics slot last Monday. In Australia, they all know Alan Jones is a right-wing blowhard. I mean, New Zealand, I think we took his comments much more seriously than the Australians did. But what was it that Jacinda Ardern had actually said in Tuvalu which triggered Alan Jones so badly in the first place last week? She basically just said, look, when she's asked about Australian climate change, she said they'll have to answer for themselves. And when Jacinda Ardern said Australia has to answer to the Pacific on climate change, that was self-evidently true at a Pacific Islands forum where the Pacific leaders had raised that very issue. 
When asked about Australia's consumption and mining of coal, Jacinda Ardern sidestepped diplomatically. Issues around Australia's domestic policy are issues for Australia, she said. But for some pundits, this amounted to a diplomatic slap. Jacinda lecturing Morrison Intervalu on climate change three. There is a self-importance there that endears her to no one. Mike Hosking there on News Talk ZB last week. But what really wound up Alan Jones were his own very firm views on energy, a hugely political issue in Australia where political and business fortunes are staked on energy policy. And in Alan Jones' now notorious on-air radio rant, Jacinda Ardern was only really a fleeting focus. China are going to construct another 290 gigawatts of capacity of coal-fired power station this year. 290 gigawatts. Liddell... 1.6 gigawatts. That's how big it is. That's how big the growth of coal-fired power in China. 290 gigawatts this year. And there was plenty more where that came from from Alan Jones that day on 2GB. Well, this week, Alan Jones has claimed that the ABC's Media Watch show has taken his comments about Jacinda Ardern out of context and he's considering laying a complaint. The reported response of Media Watch host Paul Barry was, good luck with that. Now, Alan Jones has a long-standing enmity with that programme ever since it started to investigate the scandal that became known as Cash for Comment 20 years ago. The same sort of money would flow to Jones, but it would flow through the company. Just one week after Jones okayed this arrangement, which would deliver him around $4 million a year and in time a share of the station, CEO George Bushman was offering Telstra the opportunity to sponsor the Alan Jones Breakfast Show exclusively for a three-year period. Australia's Media Watch show eventually revealed that Alan Jones had been paid to give favourable comment to companies including Qantas, Optus and major Australian banks without disclosing this arrangement to the listeners. In the end, that didn't derail Alan Jones' radio career, but this week his employers have warned him one more spray, like the one he aimed at Jacinda Ardern last week, and he would lose his job. Alan Jones also now faces the prospect of formal complaints about him, which will almost certainly end up with the Australian media watchdog, the Communications and Media Authority, which has upheld complaints in the past about Alan Jones' on-air conduct. But pondering the likely outcome of that this week on ABC Radio in Victoria, former journalist Dennis Muller from Melbourne University, who's an expert in media ethics, darkly warned that the forces and friendships which make Alan Jones a political player in Australia would probably protect him from punishment from them. Scott Morrison is called the 2GB Prime Minister. Now, put yourself in the position of an ACMA lawyer or staff member who wants to take them on. Uh, The ACMA, uh, even if it wanted to, uh, would be stymied in any attempt to bring 2GB to heel. So whether this advertising um, boycott does any good, we'll have to wait and see. Dennis Muller is a fellow at the Centre for Advancing Journalism at the University of Melbourne and the author of the soon-to-be-published study, In Your Face, How News Media Reports Affect Attitudes to Violence Against Women. This week I asked him if political friendships could really protect Alan Jones from the scrutiny of Australia's official media watchdog. In the case of, of Jones, the broadcast regulator has just contented itself with saying, look, um, not very good, we, we shouldn't be doing this sort of thing, but... Um, 
let's let's basically have lunch and have a chat about it. So that's about the way that broadcast regulating works here. But you seem to be saying on the radio on Tuesday that Alan Jones maybe had support or friendships that might make uh, it harder for you know, to make him accountable than, than maybe for another broadcast. Is it the case that he's got connections and influence which kind of protect him from being held accountable for the sort, sorts of things he says on air? Oh, Lord, yes. Uh, when John Howard was Prime Minister... Uh, he used to use the Jones program as a kind of standard platform, and Jones treated him as a favourite. So uh, John Howard would be able to go on to the Jones program and get a free ride. And similarly, it's not just on the Conservative side of politics, but Bob Carr, the former Premier of New South Wales, actually uh, sent his uh, police minister designate, a guy called Michael Costa, around to talk to uh, to uh, Alan Jones about policing policy. Uh, he was he's extraordinarily influential on both sides of politics and so yes he has very good connections at a very high level but but and, is the is the regulator not insulated from this to be independent you'd think it would have well, to be only theoretically the ACMA is part of the executive branch of government uh, and it is it, it is a statutory authority so yes it it has um, it has independence on paper but when it comes to the crunch if if I'm working for the ACMA and I want to take on Alan Jones, then I have to be mindful that uh, that, that will not take place in a political vacuum and that it's very likely that I will get uh, some pretty direct blowback either from the Minister for Communications or from the Prime Minister's office. And that's the sort of atmosphere within which the ACMA has to work. But it's also been said it's really the advertisers and the sponsors, the people with money, um, that will hold sway over over this, really. But they tend to pull out at the moment of peak outrage, and some of them have from Alan Jones's show, and then just quietly come back later. Is that the pattern you think will repeat here? Yes, I do. There have been some quite big advertising names pull out as a result of his uh, comments about Jacinda Ardern, names like Mercedes-Benz and, uh, and Coles and so on. When the hue and cry dies down, they just drift back in as if nothing happened in the medium term. In the short term, it will be a bit embarrassing, I think. There will be a, a, a reluctance to go on, but I don't think that will last more than a few days, to be perfectly frank. Former journalist and editor Dennis Muller there from Melbourne University's Centre for Advancing Journalism. And we'll hear more from him in a minute. Last month, the media watchdog across the Tasman, the Australian Communications and Media Authority, reported back on something a lot more serious than Alan Jones' on-air ranting, but something which also caused alarm over there. On the day of the Christchurch mosque attacks in March, no fewer than four national TV networks there screened scenes from the gunman's livestream video of the atrocity, including images of him firing his weapons. Now, we are not going to show that in its entirety. There is a little bit at the beginning that may just give an indication of exactly how this happened. So, a warning, we believe that this is the beginning uh, of the gunman's attack. We'll just show you that briefly. Australia's Channel 7 there in its rolling coverage back on March the 15th, after which viewers were told this. What follows there for the next uh, few minutes, and it has been viewed in our newsroom, uh, is beyond horrific, and that's where we're going to leave it there. 
But Channel 7 didn't leave it there. On its 6pm news that night, it showed footage inside the mosque with bodies blurred. And it was exactly the same pattern on the rival Channel 9. And the publicly funded ethnic-focused channel SBS also ran footage from the video in its on-air rolling coverage. But it was Sky News Australia and coverage which also aired here on Sky TV's Channel 85 that day, which ran much more of the gunman's GoPro footage than any other broadcaster and more often. Here's how the Australian ABC Media Watch program's host, Paul Barry, described that on TV four days later. On Friday, Sky News repeatedly played footage of the gunman taking his weapons from the car and approaching the mosque, and also broadcast alarming footage of him fleeing the scene, complete with subtitles. Sky went on to broadcast 40 seconds of the gunman boasting of his success, as if he'd just been playing a video game. Indeed, Paul Barry said that in his opinion, the video game-style footage trivialised and normalised 50 brutal murders. Now, by this stage, the Australian Communications and Media Authority had actually launched its own investigation into this, and four months later it concluded that most broadcasting on the day in Australia was responsible given the unique circumstances, and it said that holding broadcasters accountable for individual contraventions of the codes would have little benefit. But some viewers here, watching the same coverage of Sky News Australia on Sky's Channel 85, didn't like what they saw. They complained to Sky and then the regulator here, the Broadcasting Standards Authority. Now Sky TV argued to the Broadcasting Standards Authority that it should take account of its Australian counterpart's decision and the fact that it had no editorial control on the feed from Australia. But this week, the authority decided Sky TV here had aired scenes that breached standards for pay TV and ordered it to pay costs to the Crown. It also said that Sky TV showed not enough understanding of its own obligations and no apparent remorse. Now on the face of it, it's not surprising the four members of the Broadcasting Standards Authority did find a breach of the standards for violence and law and order. On the 15th of March, the Department of Internal Affairs advised that the live stream video was likely to be objectionable content under New Zealand law, and within 48 hours, possessing the video or sharing copies of it became a criminal offence when the Office of the Chief Censor declared the video objectionable. The Chief Censor also said at that time, news media need to carefully consider the impact of sharing broadcasting or publishing any part of that video, given the potential for harm. And since then, the Broadcasting Standards Authority itself has announced a new mission statement, part of which is to protect New Zealanders from harm. But it could also be argued that New Zealanders had a right to know what was going on from a legitimate news channel on March the 15th, one that was skilled in covering breaking news. And that video, stark evidence of the scale and brutality of the crime, was unarguably newsworthy. In its ruling this week, the BSA acknowledged that, but added... While the broadcast as a whole was newsworthy and had a high level of public interest, the clips themselves contained disturbing, violent content. And the BSA ruling went on to say this... This risked glorifying the alleged attacker and promoting his messages. As such, the degree of potential harm that could be caused to audiences was greater than the level of public interest. Now back on the 15th of March, shortly after 8pm that day, after more than five hours of rolling coverage in which the gunman's video had aired eight times, Sky TV in New Zealand announced that the Sky News Australia feed had been replaced with sports coverage until further notice. Stung by claims that Sky in New Zealand had to take the channel down, Sky News Australia's chief executive Paul Whittaker later said this was a preemptive and precautionary step on their part. He said it was to ensure that any live coverage or commentary didn't impact 
impact on the unfolding events in New Zealand or compromise any investigations. But this week, the BSA has ruled that that didn't happen soon enough. We considered the use of the clips from the alleged attacker's livestream footage had the potential to further the alleged attacker's propaganda purpose of glorifying his own actions and inciting or encouraging violence. But while Sky TV was the only outlet in New Zealand sanctioned for this, it wasn't the only one to air or publish parts of the gunman's footage here in New Zealand. Newsroom.co.nz embedded a video in one of its online stories, ironically one which urged Facebook's boss Mark Zuckerberg to shut down live streaming. That video, showing shots being fired, was swiftly removed by Newsroom after complaints from readers. And TVNZ also, twice, aired a few seconds of edited footage on March the 15th in a One News special. Loading a shotgun, the attacker walks from his vehicle in broad daylight towards the mosque. We won't show you any more from this point. But that was more than enough for some viewers who complained at the time, including to us here at MediaWatch. Now at that time, TVNZ's head of news John Gillespie told MediaWatch, One News showed just a few non-violent seconds of the footage to show the high degree of premeditation and planning from the attacker. The footage was only used subsequently in the context of discussions on gun reform. The inclusion of any sensitive footage and news coverage, he said, was signed off by him as TVNZ's head of news before the broadcast and it had been discussed with the censor's office after the broadcast. This week, the BSA agreed that TVNZ had exercised the appropriate level of editorial oversight and caution, and the potential for harm from what they chose to show, said the BSA, didn't outweigh TVNZ's right to show it. Next month, the BSA is meeting broadcasters in Auckland to discuss reporting terrorism and extreme violence and whether the rules now need to change, and they'll find out then if the broadcasters reckon the BSA has drawn the line in the right place. Ethics specialist Dennis Muller we heard from earlier in this programme, was cited by the BSA in its ruling upholding the complaints against Sky TV. But in Australia, he's criticised the watchdog there for pulling its punches in its review. What the ACMA found were that there were serious questions, with their phrase, about whether the broadcasters had breached the television codes of practice or not. The most relevant clause says a broadcaster can't show material that's likely to seriously distress or seriously offend a substantial number of viewers unless there's a public interest in doing so. So that's the sort of rather vague benchmark uh, ACMA found. But there are questions about whether that clause was breached. And what they looked at in particular was footage that, that showed a person being shot at, uh, someone who'd already been shot, a scene inside the Al Noor Mosque, So they were the sort of main uh, pieces of footage that the ACMA focused on. Uh, It left it open to uh, interpretation that the threshold for violence, which was acceptable for broadcast, uh, is footage that doesn't show someone actually being shot. That seemed to be their threshold. And do you think that's the way the broadcasters actually see it, that this is a kind of a green light that as long as we don't show anyone being shot and killed on screen, that's fine? That's exactly how the broadcasters will see it. They'll see it as a green light. As long as we don't actually show someone being shot, basically we can show everything up to that point. That's a recipe for the use of sensational and deeply offensive footage. I think you're right that that, that will become 
the sort of threshold point. Is it significant, Dennis, that um, you know three commercial television channels, the big networks, seven, nine, and ten, all ran images from the gunman's video? Uh, Sky as a pay TV uh, channel did as well, and one public one, the SBS channel did, but the public broadcaster ABC did not. Is that a significant distinction? Oh, I think it is, yes. Firstly, the ABC has a very extensive set of what are called editorial policies, and they provide detailed guidance on how um, decision-making should be made around these things. Um, and, uh, of course, the other thing is they don't have the commercial imperative. And, uh, look, it, it isn't cynical to say that um, the commercial broadcasters will push the envelope as far as they think they can uh, because they want ratings and viewers. Um, I don't say at all that that was their uh, prime motivation uh, in their decision-making here. But I think that if you're working in a culture like that, an incident like this comes along, you're habituated to making decisions that are likely to maximise ratings. I, I think that's just human nature. I think the culture in public sector broadcasters is different. It's more cautious, and, and I really don't say that as, as a way of saying that the commercial broadcasters deliberately set out uh, to sensationalise this stuff. It's just their habit of mind. And now here, our regulator, the Broadcasting Standards Authority, it sanctioned Sky TV here for running the Sky News Australia feed, which had, I think, eight instances of the gunman's images over five hours, said that simply shouldn't have been aired on New Zealand television and been seen by New Zealand viewers. But it didn't uphold complaints against TVNZ, which only showed very limited scenes from the very start of the gunman's video. Uh, it didn't show his face or the man himself. Do you think they've made the right distinction there? I think the Broadcasting Standards Authority report on this is a model of its kind, to be perfectly frank. They've identified all of the important considerations here, and I think they've arrived at, at very well-grounded findings. They, they basically uh, apply a test of proportionality. They say that, look, there was a, a high value and public interest in keeping the public informed about all this, but it says the harm caused by these extensive clips, and they were referring to the repetition as well as the content of the clips, was disproportionate to the value in them. And I think that's that's a, uh, a very well-grounded finding looking at the evidence that they had available to them. The Australian channels, or at least the, the channel I was watching, Channel 7, uh, went much further than that. Actually, at one point, you could see the gunman's weapon being raised and, and aimed at figures in, a, in the doorway of the mosque and you saw a puff of smoke, I thought that was unconscionable. But I do, Dennis, have sympathy for editors here in New Zealand when this instance happens. If you've been a broadcast TV editor, say, over the past 10 years, you've dealt with, say, the Pike River tragedy, which was a, a very difficult one to cover again. That was done live on television a lot, improvised coverage. Christchurch earthquakes, really difficult images. It's just impossible to work out how ethically to report that uh, in an ideal way. Uh, and then, you know, this this terrible incident back in March... If I was a TV editor, I'd be inclined to think, well, that video, the gunman's video, clearly a part of a story, the whole world talking about it. Personally, I don't think I would have objected if we'd seen more of that video on the day, um, the, the sort of non-lethal parts of it, and then it just hadn't been repeated. Would, would that be a fair position? Well, I think there's a distinction to be drawn between the sorts of things we were talking of, you were talking about there, uh, natural disasters or 
uh, industrial disasters such as the Pike River um, disaster or the Christchurch earthquake. Both of them did not have the propagandizing element the Christchurch atrocity did have. And of course, the body cam footage was taken expressly for the purpose of propaganda. And I think that's an important distinction between the propagandizing category and the natural disaster or industrial disaster categories. Uh, so, uh, now I think in a case like this, then you have to apply another filter. Uh, am I, by broadcasting this material, um, gratifying either the ego of the perpetrator or giving oxygen to his cause. And, and, and I, for that reason, I think you have to draw the line sooner. Mm. And, of course, you know, the circumstances were extremely chaotic. I mean, at the point where the gunman's video and, and the other online stuff became... Yes, but it always is, you see. That's, that's the point about these things. There's always a fog of war problem when these stories break. It's always difficult to know. Uh, exactly what's going on um, and if you haven't been trained and become habituated to having a few sort of uh, dot point checks in your back pocket as it were what are, what are the questions I need to ask myself here and now the, 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 that's the problem and when we and I've been a news executive for a long time you when you get confronted with these things you've got to be able to draw quickly on you know, and mistakes will get made, of course. I've made them myself. But, but the, the more you're trained to think quickly and correctly and ethically about these things, the better decisions you will make. I would hope that out of this, news executives on both sides of the Tasman uh, will be better equipped. Would you say the ACMA in Australia is going to uh, ponder this and talk about it with broadcasters? Our regulator, the BSA, is meeting them uh, and, and discussing the issue on the 5th of September, so quite soon. Do you think that either the rules in either country w will change as a result of, of this or um, just perhaps conventions, the way, the way uh, news editors behave uh, or you know, the next time something similar happens, uh, things will be different? Well, I think in Australia the... Um the Free TV Australia Code of Practice will need to be extended and tightened up. I think the, it, it's very inadequate. It's always has been. Uh, this might cause that code to be rewritten and tightened up. The real benefit uh, from the discussions that, that will happen is that perhaps there will be some uh, firmer guidance for uh, editorial staff who are on duty at these times. You can't foretell when these are going to happen. So you've got to have systems that train your people and give them practice in thinking about what they're going to do when it does happen. If anything comes out of this, then it will be perhaps some improved education for news executives and also some better guidance for them out of the codes of practice. Former journalist and editor Dennis Muller from Melbourne University's Centre for Advancing Journalism, who was cited in the Broadcasting Standards Authority's recent rulings on the broadcaster's use of the Christchurch gunman's livestream video in their coverage of the mosque attacks on the 15th of March. Dennis Muller is also the author of Journalism Ethics for the Digital Age, a book published in 2014. And you can find links to his writings on this issue in Australia and the BSA decisions on the complaints about the coverage on the RNZ website or the RNZ app in the online version of the story.
And finally on Media Watch this weekend, back in June here on the programme, we looked at the Local Democracy Reporting Service, a new publicly funded pilot project to put eight reporters into regional newsrooms around the country in places where there aren't enough of them currently to cover local news well. The million dollar fund is being administered by RNZ, but it's a collaboration with the Newspaper Publishers Association, which is endorsed by all major news publishers here. Now all this is based on a British scheme run by the BBC, which targets news deserts there, caused by local papers closing or shrinking in their regions. This week, RNZ and New Zealand On Air announced the places where they're looking to place the new reporters. The West Coast, Marlborough, Wairarapa, Rotorua, Gisborne, the Bay of Plenty, Monaco and Northland. On the 9 to noon media slot this week, former editor-in-chief Gavin Ellis said he was pleased, but he had one reservation. I have very, very strong family roots in central Otago, so I have to say that my one disappointment in this is that there is uh, no appointment in the lower South Island, and I really do hope that will be redressed. And Gavin Ellis isn't the only one in that area. One outlet there which wants to take part, but can't, is the online outfit Crux, which covers the Southern Lakes region and has made the running on local stories there, such as the stretched state of maternity care. But as an online outlet, and not a newspaper, it isn't eligible for a local democracy reporter under the scheme, even though New Zealand On Air currently funds multimedia journalism by Crux that is available online for free. The managing editor of Crux, Peter Newport, has lobbied the Broadcasting Minister for help, but participation in the project remains limited to newspapers for now. On 9 to noon last Tuesday, presenter Lynn Freeman gave the recruitment a little push like this. In fact, um, I can give that address, rnz.co.nz slash jobs. <laughs> That's pretty simple, isn't it? And that address again, rnz.co.nz forward slash jobs. If you're looking for a new reporter's role in or around Greymouth, Blenheim, Masterton, Rotorua, Gisborne, Fakatane, Monaco, or Whangarei. Well, that's all we have for you in Media Watch this week, but the Media Watch team will be back with more at about 10.30 next Wednesday night with Midweek Media Watch, talking to Karen Hay on The Lately Show, and then back again for Media Watch at the same time next Sunday here on RNZ National.